You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Church, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we've been looking at the, the Gospel of John to better understand who Jesus is and what he has to offer. And today we're going to continue that study by looking at chapter 7. And so I invite you with me, grab the Bible in front of you, open your own Bibles, flip open your phone if you have a flip phone. If not, click open your phone and open up the Bible app to John chapter 7 and chapter 8. Now, as soon as you get there, you're going to start looking at this and realize this is a meaty section of Scripture. We're talking like 113 verses today. I'm not reading all of it today, okay? I'm going to only be reading a few selections, and so we will throw those on the screen, but I do want you to have it open because it's going to be really helpful for you to be able to kind of trace the argument or be able to see what's happening. And the reason we're doing chapter 7 and 8 together today is because these two chapters, in fact, chapters 7, 8, 9, and the first half of chapter 10 all occur on the exact same day, which is quite interesting. They all occur at the same time. So we're going to be looking at the first half today and then the second half of chapter 7, 8, 9, 10 next week. Now, as you're opening to chapter 7, let me just remind you what we've seen so far. If you've been with us, we watch Jesus from the beginning of the gospel go from this obscure nobody in some backwater town to a guy who's attracting massive crowds. Remember, by by chapter 6, Jesus is pulling crowds of 20,000 strong, which is quite impressive when you have to remember he didn't have mics or anything, and yet people flocked to hear what he had to say and what he was doing. Now, over the course of Jesus' ministry, we're at about the two-year mark in Jesus' ministry. Over the span of time, Jesus has said a number of things. And while many people love what Jesus has to say, while many people are like, yeah, I'm in, I'm going to follow this guy, this is the guy, others are at best confused by what he has to say. They, They can't figure him out. And then still others are just ticked. There is nothing he can say, there's nothing he can do that's going to make them any better. And as we now transition from chapter 6 into chapter 7, we discover first, six months have passed between the events of 6 and 7, and we know that because of the two festivals that are mentioned, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But over the span of this six-month period, the only thing that's changed is more people are confused by Jesus. More people have no idea who he is or what he's offering or what he's up to. And especially if you look at chapter 7, you're going to realize the first group of people we come into contact with, if you're just looking at verses 2, we don't have this on the screen, 2 through 5, is we actually encounter Jesus' own brothers. It's the first mention of them in this gospel, and many of you didn't even know this. Yes, Jesus had brothers. They would have been half-brothers, right? But they would have been Mary and Joseph's kids. And so he has brothers, and apparently his own brothers didn't believe in him. They didn't get what he was after. They thought he was just trying to make a name for himself. They thought he was just trying to be some famous celebrity. They didn't get it. 
And as we continue to follow the narrative, as Jesus ends up making his way to this great feast in Israel, the Feast of Tabernacles, we discover through a number of conversations that the crowds are continually split on him. Some, again, love him, don't get him, but some love him. Others, on the other hand, think he's demon-possessed, and still others want to arrest him. It's this mixed bag of confusion. Nobody can fully pinpoint who he is. Nobody is able to say, I get what he's saying. But all of that changes today. In fact, all of this changes on this 24-hour period that we're going to look at this week and next week. Through three simple declarations, Jesus is going to clearly reveal who he is. Now, the first two declarations, the crowds aren't fully clear on what he's saying. But by the third one, by the third thing that Jesus declares, we're going to look at it today, there is not a person who doesn't understand what he is saying. Everybody gets it. The problem is, even though they get it, they don't fall down and worship him. They don't end up committing their life to him. They end up picking up rocks and trying to kill him. But everybody at least gets him. What I want to do today is I want to help you kind of enter into this story. But in order to really do it, I have to help you understand the background. Because as I said, Jesus says all of these three claims on the last and greatest day of the greatest festival of the Jews. In order to understand what he's saying, you're going to have to see, you have to get what's going on at the festival. So I got to give you some background before we start reading. Now, as I said, there are three great festivals in Judaism. Some of you know this, some of you don't. That's okay. Honestly, I don't even know that I knew this. Just going into this one. Three great festivals. The first occurs in the spring, and that is Passover. Think around the time of Easter, and that's because Easter occurs at the same time as Passover. The second great feast is the Feast of Weeks. We call it Pentecost, and that occurs seven weeks after um, Passover, and so that's at the beginning part of summer. The last and greatest feast occurs in the fall, around the time of the harvest, and so it's a time of incredible celebration. Think Thanksgiving on steroids, and that is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I say think Thanksgiving on, t on steroids because I'm telling you, there are some awesome things that take place during this feast. In fact, there are ancient sources that talk about they having traveled to Jerusalem during this feast and just thought this was just the best party out there. They did all sorts of cool stuff. There's a ton of traditions associated with this feast. The most common, the most popular, is actually where the feast gets its name. And that is, it's the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And that's because for this festival, everyone builds these booth-type things. In fact, I have a picture of them for you. Because if you go to Israel today during the, fe the feast, you're going to see some of these. Can we throw that on the screen, please? We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> Don't worry about it. We'll do it later. But you'll see these little booths. Essentially, they're just made out of like wood, and then they have these thatch roofs. And the whole idea is these were the same types of shelters Israel would have had when they were wandering through the wilderness. And that's because this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, celebrates those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. That period of time when God provided for two million people as they wandered aimlessly for 40 years in the wilderness. Remember, no supermarkets, no, no great, you know, quick stop shops. 
They have to come up with food and water for two million people, not to mention protection and all this stuff. Well, when they finally get into the promised land, this was one of the great festivals they set up to remember that time. And so all of these traditions come back to celebrating this. So the primary is building the booths. Do we have the picture of the booths? I didn't send you the PowerPoint? Okay. Odd, but that's okay. Before I embarrass myself further, we're just going to have a conversation. Do we at least have verses in the PowerPoint? Okay, good. We'll get to there. All right, because if not, you're going to definitely have to have your Bibles open, guys. We're going back like 30 years prior to slides. Some of you are like, there existed? That was a time? Yeah. I don't remember it, but I've been told. I read it in a book. Okay. So there's other great symbols associated with the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Booths. They all celebrate the time of wandering. In Jesus' day, one of the most popular celebrations, and I'm telling you, this sounded so cool. I would have loved to have watched this, is every day there was this thing called the water drawing ceremony. I mean, even the name sounds kind of cool, the water drawing ceremony. And what would happen is the priests would start up at the Temple Mount, and they would work their way through the city, and they'd end up at the southern border of the city near the Pool of Siloam. And when they get to the pool, the priest would take this giant golden pitcher, dip it in, lift it high, while the crowds, I mean, the whole city turned out for this, and they just started chanting and singing praises to God for his provision and his salvation that comes through water. And then with this golden pitcher raised high, the priest would lead the processional up the hill. All the while, the crowds are following, and in the crowd's hand, in their right hand, they have this lulav. I mean, everybody knows what the lulav is, right? No, it's a, it's a bunch of sticks and twigs that were reminiscent of what they would have found in the wilderness. And in their left hand, they have the ethrog. You know the ethrog. No? Okay. It was fruit. Again, reminiscent of the harvest. And so they walk with the lulub and they have this, this, this fruit in their hands and then they shake it as they follow the golden pitcher up the hill. And while they do this, they sing the Hallel. And the Hallel is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. I mean, this would have been a cool party. The whole purpose of this was to give honor and glory to God for his provision. And ultimately, when they reach the temple mount, the priests then walk up to where the altar area is, and they walk behind it, and they take their their golden pitcher, and they dump it out on the altar. And so as you can imagine, the water then begins to spill over the edges and run down the temple steps. And they would do this every single day. And as they did this, you know, the people are going wild, it's crazy, it's exciting. But on the seventh day, things got even crazier. Because instead of doing it once, they actually did it seven times. Seven times they'd start at the temple, go down to the pool, go back and back and back and back and back. And so you can imagine the ground is just sopping wet by the end of this. Now, if from the outside, this looks like a very odd tradition. Like, why would God have them do this? Or why would they think this is a thing? Well, you have to remember, they're in the wilderness. Well, excuse me, they're in the desert. Israel is an arid climate, right? They don't have a ton of fresh water. And so if they're going to take care of their crops, their primary way of taking care of the crops is they have to wait for rain. They have to have fresh water come from the skies. In other words, God has to provide for it. And so in much the same way as they're celebrating the harvest, as they give their first fruits back to God, their crops and their animals as their sacrifice, they are also sacrificing water. It's a symbolic gesture. Obviously, a pitcher's worth of water isn't going to do a whole lot. But it's a symbolic way of saying, God, thank you for the previous year's rain. 
And Lord, we just ask that you would give us rain next year. Now, over the years, what happened is this, this image, because this feast was so popular and so cool, is the prophets began to tap into this. And the prophets began to use the imagery of this feast, and specifically this water-drawing ceremony, to really kind of talk about something far greater than just what God had done in the past. They wanted to talk about God's future provision as well. And so the prophets would talk about, as they would see this water come spilling over the edge and flowing out, they would talk about one day there would be this day when God would send water out of the temple and it would begin to give this stream of life that anybody that came into contact with would be able to live again. One of the best examples, and I encourage you to go back and read it if you get the chance, is Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47 gives us the clearest picture. Ezekiel talks of a day when this this bubbling water would, would come up from the temple steps and it would begin to cascade over the steps and through the cities and over the hills and eventually this river of water, of life-giving water, would make its way to the Dead Sea and everything this river of water came into contact with would come to life, even the Dead Sea. And it's this image of, it's, it starts with the temple but it oozes its way out, and even the nations are eventually blessed by what God does through the temple. Okay, with that image in mind, I want you to look with me at Jesus' first claim. We're in John chapter 7, looking at verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, what is it? Rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus is clearly reaching backwards. Now, I should be clear, we're not actually sure what the last and greatest day of the festival is. Scholars are actually split on this. If it's the seventh day of the festival, you have to remember the ground would be sopping wet when Jesus says this. And so this would be a clear image. Jesus pointing at that and going, yeah, that, that's me. I am the water. I am the source. From me comes living springs of water. But if it's the eighth day, and and I'll argue, I actually think it is the eighth day. This is the first day of the festival when the ground is completely dry. When everybody's packing up and going home. And so Jesus stands up on the last and great day in the midst of the bone-dry ground, and he says, I will thirst. I will quench your thirst. From me come streams of living water. So it really doesn't matter if it's the seventh or the eighth day, because what is clear to everyone who hears this, there's no doubt about this, Jesus is hijacking this great symbol of the feast. And he is declaring himself to be the source of the living water. Jesus is declaring himself to be the one who can quench every desire that you have. Not the temple, not the residence where God is, Jesus. And from Jesus, who is the source, these these streams of living water will go out. And John will later explain... He means the Holy Spirit will come into us through the means of Jesus. Well, as you can imagine, this split the room. Look at verse 40. On hearing his word, some of the people said, Surely this man is a prophet. 
Others said, no, he's the Messiah. Still others said, what is up with this guy? How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Doesn't the scripture say that Jesus will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of him. And some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Soon after this, Jesus makes his second declaration. But again, I need to give you more background. Now, if you remember, if you remember, this whole feast is about celebrating Israel's time of wandering in the desert. So beyond the great provision that God gave them through rain and through food, manna and water in the desert, one of the other great things God did for them during that 40 years of wandering was he led them as a giant pillar of fire. Remember this? And this giant pillar of fire not only gave light to the community so that they weren't stumbling around in the darkness, but it also provided a hedge of protection around them. Who in their right mind is going to charge at this giant pillar of fire? I'm not going to pick off those people. I'm going to try and befriend those people. But even more than that, this giant pillar of fire, beyond providing protection, beyond providing light, was also the source of guidance. The pillar is the one that led Israel. Israel would follow it around, and God would take them where he wanted to go. And so in this festival, as a means of celebrating that, they would light four giant lamps in the temple courtyard. And ancient sources tell us that these lamps were so bright, they actually gave light to the entire city. But as they would light the lamps, people would come out with giant torches, and they'd dance the night away. They would sing and party. I'm telling you, if Thanksgiving looked like this, this would be the coolest holiday ever. I mean, beyond the fact that we're shaking our ulubs and our ethrogs, somebody's going to give me a torch? I'm in. That sounds awesome. I'd be all over this holiday. I mean, after Thanksgiving, we're just on like a tryptophan coma, right? Just clicking through football. This is more my idea of a party. I like this. Okay, so again, with this image in mind, look at what Jesus says, chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again, this is soon after what he had just said, when Jesus spoke again, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, Jesus is hijacking another great symbol of this festival. See, if you just read these on your own, you don't know the festival, you just go, well, what is he really getting at in this? It's painfully clear what he is saying. He is associating himself with this giant pillar of fire in the wilderness. And he's saying, just as you followed God, and God led you to the promised land, follow me. I will guide you. I will direct you. I will lead you. And anyone who follows me will have the light of life. Well, as you can imagine, by this point, somebody spoke up, and they just challenged him. Jesus, where are you getting this from? This is nuts. What's wrong with you? And from this point forward, chapter 8, the conversation really escalates. Look at what they say in the next verse. Verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him. Who are you? Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony isn't valid. You have no one to verify your claims. Where are you getting this from? You're just making it up. You can't just stand here and spout things out. I can stand up and say, I'm God's gift to the world too. Doesn't mean anything. Where's your proof? So verse 17. In your own law, Jesus says, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. 
I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. They asked him, who's your father? You should know me. Or you don't know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. In other words, Jesus is saying, you don't get me. And the reason you don't get me is because you don't actually know my father. You don't get me because you don't understand the one who sent me. You don't believe in me because you don't believe in God. You may be some holy, righteous, religious teacher. You may think you have your act together, but you don't actually trust God. This is an act. This is a show. Well, as you can imagine, they were really accommodating, and they said, you're so right, Jesus. What do you have to say about this? Eventually, the conversation turns, and somebody finally just has enough. Look at, look at verse 48. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed? You're just a psycho. You're nuts and you're a heretic. Get out of here. But Jesus replies, I'm not possessed by a demon. I honor my father and yet you dishonor me. Verse 50, I am not seeking glory for myself. But there is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. Very truly I tell you. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. Like this, again, just ratcheting up the argument here. Verse 52, at this, the Jews exclaim, Now we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham died. So did the prophets. Yet you are going to say that anybody who keeps your word will never taste death? Are you greater than Abraham? He died. So did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Oh, church. This, this is the softball question Jesus has been waiting for. Who do you think you are? Are you greater than our father Abraham? Look, if you've been following along, if you've been reading John's gospel up until this point, you realize John's whole point has been trying to explain to us who Jesus is. And if you go all the way back to the beginning, John begins with lauding Jesus with these incredibly extravagant titles. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Messiah. He's the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. And then as we continue reading, we get into chapter 2 and discover that he is the Messiah. He brings with him this great day of the Lord and the new covenant along with it. And then as we go to chapter 4, we discover that as Messiah, he's just breaking down barriers left and right. He didn't come just for the Jews. He came for everyone, even the most morally questionable of his enemies. He came for them. And he doesn't stop there. Because as we saw last week, Jesus shows, yes, I am great. In fact, I am greater than Moses. Remember, that was the whole point of last week's conversation. I am greater than Moses, and therefore what I offer is of far superior value to Moses. Jesus has knocked down every other figure in Old Testament lore. And now they set him up with this softball question. Who do you think you are? Are you greater than Abraham? He was the father of the faith. There is no one greater. Abraham had pure faith. He never messed up. Are you saying you're greater than Abraham? Who do you think you are? Jesus was waiting for it. And so he says this, verse 58, I tell you the truth. 
before Abraham was born. And I just imagine he lets it linger. I mean, look, it's not in the text. Okay, this is my interpretation. Fully admit this. But you've got to admit, if he stops right here, before Abraham was born, everyone is just on pins and needles. Where are you going with this? What are you going to say? How are you going to respond? Are you greater than Abraham? Before Abraham was born, what does he say? I am. And as we see at this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus slipped away. There is no longer any confusion about who Jesus is or what Jesus is claiming. Everybody gets it. Everybody finally understands. Everybody understands exactly what he means by this statement. And instead of falling down and worshiping him, instead of obeying him, instead of following him, what do they do? They try to kill him. They try to kill him. Now, you may look at this, and if you're unfamiliar with, with this, this statement, I am, you may be like, what is the big deal? It's just him saying, I'm here. <laughs> hey, <laughs> how you doing? But if you remember, if you go back all the way to Exodus chapter 3, all the way to the beginning, close to the beginning of the Bible. In Exodus chapter 3, at the burning bush, God reveals his divine name to Moses. Moses says, hey God, what's your name? Who am I going to tell people you are? And God says, I am who I am. I am the one who is. I am the one who was. I am the one who will be. I am the I am. Now this name was held with such reverence. Pastor Chris talked about this a few months ago when we looked at the word Yahweh. This name was held with such reverence that Jews would go out of their way whenever they would even read it in the word to not ever say the name Yahweh because it was so divine, so holy that they substituted the word for the generic term Lord, Adonai. They substituted it. And now what do you have Jesus doing? Jesus isn't just using the word. Jesus isn't just saying, I am Yahweh. He's pointing to himself. He's ascribing the name to himself. In no uncertain terms, he is declaring himself to be God. And everyone gets it. And instead of falling down worshiping, they try to kill him. Okay, can we just pause? We are now at the end of chapter 8. How epic is this story, guys? Come on! If any of you ever come to me and say, the Bible's boring, it's dumb, I don't want to read it, I'm just going to be like, what is wrong with you? Did you ever read this thing? I mean, this thing is so exciting, it's engaging, but realize, we're at chapter 8. We still got like 14 more to go in this book. But just consider what John has revealed Jesus to be so far. I mean, just think about this. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one Moses wrote about, the one the prophets pointed towards. He's the Messiah figure, the one who's come to make things right in the world. He is the one through his efforts that has the ability to hear our prayers and answer them. He's the one breaking down gender, ethnic, racial barriers and conversations. He's the one that is far superior to Moses and therefore what he offers is superior. He is the means of salvation. That's what we talked about last week. And now as we look at just the three claims he makes today, <clears throat> he is the one who can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. He is the one who can provide guidance 
to any of the big decisions you have to make. And the reason he can do that is because before Abraham was, I am. Because he is. He is God. When you look at this and you just put these eight chapters together, you have to conclude at the end of the day, there is no one like Jesus. None. No one compares to him. Right? He has no equal. He is unprecedented and unparalleled. He is the incomparable, almighty King of kings, Lord of lords. When you encounter him, you have to just stop and be in awe. There is no equal. He is unrivaled. Or is he? See, it's, it's really easy. It's really easy for us to say that. It's really easy for us to read the scriptures. It's really easy for us to come to the conclusion, Jesus is God. Jesus is the greatest. Jesus offers us the best stuff. It's easy to say that. Do we actually believe it? See, what got me on this, and I'm going to be honest, this, 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 we're going to transition into a little period of hard conversations, okay? So just, you know, buckle up. Here we go. What got me thinking about this is, as I was continuing to read through these passages, there's, there's a couple verses in particular. One comes out of chapter 8, verse 31. Notice, to the Jews who did believe in him, to those who, who were getting what he said, and to, okay, I'm not offended, I want to follow you, I want to see what you have to offer, he goes, great, let me explain to you what I'm all about. Let me give you the to-dos, right? How do we act on this? Where do we go with this? Here it is. He's laying it out. If you want to be my disciple, if you hold to my teaching, you are my disciple. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This, This phrase, hold to my teaching, this isn't just about intellectual exercises, right? I think we can all understand this. He's not just saying, if you can simply grasp the truth that I am saying, if you could hold on to them, if you can understand them, if you could speak them back to me, if you could pass the test, that's enough. No, that's not what he means. And in fact, if you look at verse 51, he explicitly says, anyone who obeys my word will have life. When Jesus talks about this idea of holding on, it's the same concept as that Hebrew word shema. Remember, again, Pastor Chris talked about this a few months back. The word shema had to do with the word hearing. Hear, O Israel. But what it was getting at isn't just let sound waves bounce into your ears and out the other ear. Shema means take what you are hearing, apply it, think about it, and allow it to begin to shape the way that you think, the way that you speak, the way that you act, the way that you engage other people. See, there's no benefit in just allowing Jesus to speak and go, well, that's wonderful. Thanks. I'm going to keep doing what I want. Remember, the whole point here is Jesus is coming to offer you life. Jesus is trying to transform your entire world. And the premise that he's been operating from the beginning is, you don't know what you're doing, so stop. Follow me. Hold to my teachings, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you obey my word, you will live. You will experience this life. So here's what I want to ask you today. Here's what I want you to consider. Is this how you actually interact with Jesus? Again, it's one thing to say he's unrivaled. 
It's one thing to say there is no one like him. It's one thing to say he is the highest source of authority in all of the world. Is that true in your life? Is that actually the way you interact with him? Let's just take the two things he reveals about himself. That he is the one that can satisfy the deepest needs of our life and that he is the one that can provide guidance. Let's just take those two areas. So I'll ask you some questions. I, I should also tell you, I tried everything in my power to get away from this application point. I was like, this is awkward, this is going to be hard, I don't know if this is just God speaking to me, but every time I prayed about, Lord, can we go somewhere else with this sermon, this is going to get a little uncomfortable for people. He kept saying no. And it just, it literally kept coming back to this, and I, I can tell you, I was wrestling with this last night. Is this really, Lord? And it was like, yeah, no, it, it's true. So I believe God wants to say this to at least somebody in this room today. So I want you to listen to these questions. When you have to make a decision, when you are looking for guidance, who do you look to first? What do you lean on for guidance? I mean, think about this. There's a big decision that needs to be made to work. Where do you look for advice on how to handle that? You've got to discipline your kid. Who's shaping your discipline philosophy? Uh, let's talk about your budget. Everybody loves that. Who's actually shaping the way you spend your money? God invites you to give him money. How are you doing on that? The list can go on. Where are you going to move? When are you going to move? What job are you going to take? Who are you going to marry? Should this person be somebody you want to invest in your life? I mean, these are some big decisions where are you looking for answers? Do you fall on your knees? Lord, help me to process this. Lord, what do I, what do I got to do in the midst of this and allow him to kind of guide you? Or are you more like me and you instantly go to the God of Google and Amazon? <laughs> and you try and type out that answer and let the gods of Google and Amazon speak back to you through TED Talks and through good books. Okay, or, or let's push it again. Jesus says that he is the one that can satisfy the deep longings of your life. And I don't know what your longings are. I don't know if it's hurts that need to be quenched. I don't know if it's an area that you just need to be comforted. I don't know if it's encouragement. I don't know if it's affirmation. I don't know if it's this feeling of security. What is your thing? If you can identify it, and then I just want to ask you, where do you try and find satisfaction for those things? Again, I doubt you're doing that on Google and Amazon, right? They don't really help on that area. But as I reflected on these questions, as I was processing this, I realized I try and find satisfaction in really two arenas apart from God. Either on my own, right? Like if I don't feel good about something, if I don't feel good about my action or I feel bad about the way somebody treated me, I am very quick to justify my actions, my behaviors, my decisions, it's a way of building myself up, finding the affirmation that I need, right? Or in my better days, I at least try and find it from other people, right? I'm desperate for the affirmation, the encouragement, the love of other people. I want people to speak in. I want them to tell me I'm doing a good job. I look to it from my boss. I look to it from my friends. I look to it from my wife. Am I doing this right? I try to be satisfied by others, or I try to be satisfied by myself, I want to be clear. 
I'm not saying that those going to other people is a bad thing. I'm not even saying that Google and Amazon is a bad thing. I love Google and Amazon. I mean, my, just look at my wallet. It'll tell you. You want to see my credit card bill. I love Amazon. I also love TED Talks. I love good books. But here's the thing. Those are all tools. Right? At the end of the day, those are not God. At the end of the day, those can be powerful means by which God does speak, by which God does satisfy, by which God does encourage, by which God does guide. But at the end of the day, if I'm not submitting those tools before God and saying, Lord, is this really true of you? Is this really what you're saying? Is this what you want me to hear? And I'm just taking it. I'm just worshiping the tool. All I've done is I've elevated the tool above God. I've taken this thing that God gave as something good and I've stopped using it as a means of encountering the living God and I've just stopped at the tool. At the end of the day, if I'm completely honest and vulnerable with you, I have to admit God is not unrivaled in my life. There are many other gods that I have in my life. There are many other things I have elevated above Him. Church, the biblical word for that is idolatry. If I've elevated something above God, I've made it into an idol. This is hard because the truth is we, we have to deal with this reality sometimes. We need to be confronted with the reality of our brokenness and our sin. Not because God likes to punish us in it, not because God likes to rub it in our face and go, see, you suck. We've already covered, that's a good word. I covered that a few weeks ago, right? Everybody good on sucks? Okay, I think we're good. Sorry. Common vernacular. Point is, God's not sitting here rubbing it in our face. This is, this is, again, the beauty of this passage. I mean, think about this. If Jesus is God, if he's truly all-knowing, omniscient, he knew full well what he was doing when he stepped into our world to pursue us, to love us, to care for us, and more importantly, as John has showed us repeatedly, to invite us into a relationship with himself. Jesus already knows your brokenness. He's not pointing this out so that you feel bad about yourself like he likes to just go, see, I told you, you are terrible. He points it out because, guys, sometimes it's those barriers that we have to realize. We have to realize the sins that exist, the other gods that are preventing us from being able to truly cling to him so that we can experience those lives. That's why Jesus calls out our sin. That's why we come to church and be reminded of these things. Not to wallow in it, but so that we can be mindful of it, so that we can begin to hand it over, so that we can confess it, so that we can say to the Lord, I am sorry. Help. See, it's only when you get to a place where you're able to express sorrow or remorse that you're able to truly allow somebody to whisper in your ears, I forgive you. I love you. I know. It's okay. This is why Jesus came. This is why he came and lived among us. This is why he died for us. I know I'm skipping to the end of the gospel, but guys, it's been out for 2,000 years. If you haven't read it yet, come on. <laughs> By the end of the book, Jesus dies for us. And the reason he dies for us is as a means of taking the penalty, 
the burden for all of these stupid things that we have done that have separated us from God, that have inhibited us from being able to experience the life that he offers. He goes, I'm going to take that and I'm going to set it aside. We're done. There is no longer a barrier between you and God. And he says, come and see what I am all about. What Jesus does is nuts. I'm not going to lie. He is like no one else. But isn't that exactly the point? There is no one like Jesus. He has no equal. He is truly unrivaled. And so today, I just invite you in the midst of reflections on your own sin, a reflection on your own areas where you have elevated things above God, as we continue to worship, lay those before the Lord. Confess them in your hearts and allow him to speak his sweet mercies into your ear And more than that, as you continue to listen to him, obey, live, flourish. Let's pray. Father, we give you honor, glory, and praise for who you are. You are truly a good God, a God of immense love and grace who is constantly in relentless pursuit of us. Lord, as we reflect on your word, it is easy to say those things about you, but as we reflect on our life, we have to recognize sometimes we don't interact with you that way. Many of us elevate other things above you. Many of us do have rivals for you in our life. And Father, I pray that we would learn to lay those at your feet. We would confess those idols to you. And as we confess, as we bring up those, we dredge the brokenness of our life. We would allow you to speak your mercies over us. We would truly hear clear as day, we love you, we forgive you. In the meantime, Father, for the rest of us who are simply in a space of longing, who have these deep, unsatisfied longings in our lives, whether it's these hurts or these pains that we are feeling, I pray, Father, that you, who are the great source of comfort, would come and near to my brothers and sisters and love them today. Remind them, Lord, that you are so good.